0: Welcome to Sport, Faith, Life. I'm Chad Carlson.
1: And I'm Brian Bolt.
0: We're two guys from rival schools who came together with one common purpose, to think deeply about sport and faith. We're sport scholars, we're coaches, and we're competitive athletes, or at least we were. And together we've created Sport, Faith, Life, a conversation that meets at the intersection of sport and faith.
1: Joining us today on Sport Faith Life is Will Whitmore. Will serves as a school minister at Mercersburg Academy, a boarding school in southern Pennsylvania, where he also teaches in the history and religion departments. He's also finishing his Ph.D. at the University of Gloucestershire, where his research focuses on sport chaplaincy in elite sports settings. We're really excited to talk with our friend Will today, so let's get started.
0: Hey, we're so excited to have Will Whitmore with us today. Will, uh, so glad to have you. Hey, let's start off with a question about sport in your life. Tell us a little bit.
2: Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. It's a, it's an honor to be here and uh, been an avid listener. I actually, though, I'll start with this. I think this is the first podcast where we've had full alliteration with the names, Chad Carlson, Brian Bolton, <laughs> Will Whitmore. So I'm glad we keep pushing all the boundaries and breaking barriers uh, on
1: this stuff. <laughs> Uh, keen observation life, skills there, Will. Absolutely. <laughs>
2: it's, it only, this is a, there's a benefit to having an alliteration in your name that only comes up so often. So you have to really seize it while you have it. Um, sport in my life has always been present. Uh, it's been a constant passion and a constant joy. Um, I was actually uh, born across the street from the Metrodome during the Twins' first World Series victory. Um, so if we believe in a divine right of uh, athletic kind of fandom, I believe I was born into that. Uh, a lot of kids who were born that same week were named Kirby or Kent for Kirby Puckett and Kent Herbeck, uh-huh. two big stars on the team. Uh, but my parents just kind of stuck to the plan. So, uh, no, growing up, I was active in sports and engaged in sport. And my family are huge fans. Um, when I was in high school, I was in our basement. I think I was watching TV and I hear this blood curdling scream from upstairs and it really scared me. And so I run upstairs and I say to my mom, what happened? What happened? And she just screams, he struck him out with the bases loaded. And so I grew up in this (laughs) very active and engaged sports fandom house with my mom listening to twins on the radio or us watching football every weekend. And, uh, it was a very active family, sports family, um, I still remain an athlete as well. I'm a big cyclist. I've ridden about 4,500 miles so far this year. We're recording the first week of September and got two big fall goals. But last year I rode 7,000 miles. And so I keep uh, a fairly active uh, cycling lifestyle up. So that's kind of me with sport. It's been a constant joy and a constant blessing in my life.
0: How fun those stories. And uh, experiences as fans, experiences of how we learn from the people that are our models in life on how we should act related to sport, how cool that is. Hey, tell us a little bit about faith in your life, Will.
2: Yeah, just like sport, uh, faith has also been a constant. Um, I was raised in a Christian home, and uh, religion was always something that was present um, and positive in those ways. My parents were active in church, my wider family was active in the church. Um, and like many people over time, uh, I learned what it meant to have my own faith and not just the faith I grew up into. Um, and that really occurred to me in my formative years in college, um, really meeting a point uh, in between my, my uh, freshman and sophomore year of college where I was starting to feel the pull of religious life. And uh, I had a, a family mentor, my grandparents' pastor, asked me to consider the church And he said, you know, you can do anything you want in life, but don't forget the church. And that had a huge impact in me and really changed my life from just being a disciple and kind of thinking I'll do something else to saying, oh, I think I want to be a disciple. And I think I want to help others in discipleship. And I think I want to uh, take up the mantle of uh, attending seminary and and kind of identifying my vocation, not just as a Christian, but as a, uh, you know, in walk and deed, but as in profession as well.
1: You know, kind of fascinating stuff, Will, as you think about just one person kind of says something to you and it it captures you in a moment. And, you know, don't forget about the church and that that echoes in your mind as you continue. Uh, I want to get back into I mean, the cycling is is really interesting. Seven thousand miles in a year. Are you kidding me? Um so give us uh th- that's a strange tidbit but uh give us something else that are, that will help our listeners understand something about you maybe maybe a little off the beaten path.
2: Yeah, um I can think of two things. Um first I'll say with the cycling it it helps when you're in a global pandemic and you're not going anywhere. Uh it's e- a lot easier to m- get 7,000 miles uh when that's the case. So that will not be happening again probably um, but two things. Yeah, one, uh, my wife and I are foster parents. Um, so we have two foster children. And that's actually how we chose to start our family. Um, and uh, we felt very compelled to um, to say that, you know, we have a home that has room for some more uh, and has some love in it for those uh, young people who might not have the safety and security that they um, that they should have. And so my wife and I feel very passionately about foster care and about helping those in our local community uh, who need that type of uh, service. So we've had two foster kids uh, who've been living with us for quite some time, and they bring uh, quite a bit of joy into our life. And another one is I work at a boarding school. Uh, that's a fairly atypical thing. You know, being, as I said, from Minnesota and you guys from The Midwest, Uh, you know, growing up, boarding school was either for people who were really good at sports, people who were about to be on some sort of like scared straight TV show, um, or, you know, you thought it was the Robin Williams, the Dead Poet Society, where everyone's reading poetry and standing on desks. Uh, So I came into uh, boarding schools when I was at seminary, at Princeton Theological Seminary, and really discovered a really beautiful world of community and care that I could serve as a chaplain. So it's not all, uh, you know, rich kids whose parents don't care about them or kids who really need help. There's this really unique space in the middle, uh, where you can have a really transformative and, uh, imp- a powerful impact on students. You
1: know, that's also fascinating, uh, I think probably to most of our of our listeners, although you know the UK has has a really rich history of boarding schools as well, and and I wonder, I think maybe if we could just start there, and if you could, I think you opened the door a little bit there. We at Sport Faith Life, we try to feature as much as we can uh, academics and practitioners, and you know Chad and I kind of fit into that category, and and so do you. You're constantly um, engaging with people, doing the work of chaplaincy, and we'll get later to the part that you're, you're also doing academic work. So tell me a little bit about life at the boarding school and how you have interacted as a professional, but also how your family has interacted in that space.
2: Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. So I've been at Mercersburg Academy. This is the start of my seventh academic year. Mercersburg Academy is a co-ed boarding and day school in South Central Pennsylvania. We're located about two hours outside Washington, D.C. We're about 10 miles north of the PA-Maryland border. Um, We serve 440 students, and if you include first and second nationalities, I think this year we'll have between 35 and 37 countries. We'll have almost 30 states represented as well. So we're looking at a really uh, unique and diverse area and whatnot. So Professionally, I serve as the school's minister, uh, which is kind of our term for chaplaincy. And what I really like about the idea of the name of school minister is it's really an overarching term and theme. Uh, I'm not just here for our Christian students. I'm not just here for our students. I'm not just here for our, uh, our colleagues who find religion. I'm here for the school, and I'm here for all who are engaged with the school. So It's not uncommon for me to uh, spend time with our staff, spend time and emailing with alumni. Uh, We recently had an alumni who I'm friends with actually get in a cycling accident. And so I've been corresponding back and forth with him, just providing a little pastoral care and whatnot, um, and even our families. So I feel really fortunate and blessed uh, to get to do that professionally. Um, I also teach in our history and religion department. And uh, so I teach our religion courses and then I provide pastoral care. Like I said, Uh, I actually do a lot of sports chaplaincy with our kids. Uh, I spend a lot of time on the fields. Uh, We're recording this the last week of August, first week of September, and this is our preseason week. So our kids are in two day workouts and kind of getting used to the rhymes and rhythms of the season. Uh, So I'll spend the majority of my afternoons bouncing between uh, different practices, even sometimes participating in a few uh, while I still can, and uh, it helps keep the fitness up. And so I really uh, enjoy uh, that bit of my job because my kids really understand the world of sport and engagement, but don't always understand the world of faith, and I can kind of bridge those gaps by connecting in those ways. And much like sports chaplaincy other, uh, otherwise, and we can talk about this with my academic research It's amazing how much a pastoral presence uh, can have a positive effect in a team or in a sports entity or for individuals. And I love providing that for our students. Um, But what I love most about boarding school professionally and personally is the dynamic atmosphere of life together. Um, You know, my family, we live on campus. We have a townhouse on campus. Uh, We eat in the dining hall with the students. Uh, My kids know the the students that, uh, my six-year-old calls them the big kids. So when the big kids are around, she mm-hmm. gets very excited. Um, and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's that kind of, it's not, mon- it's, it's kind of based off that monasticism where we do life together. Um, and that can have some big challenges, but it can also have a lot of joys to it as well. And you really get to know these kids and they get to know you in a way that's just not possible in a day school or in a public school. Um, and that's a really exciting uh, thing, and I think it's a really beautiful thing. Um, and for those who it's the right atmosphere for, it can be a really transformative experience.
0: So your title of school minister, I, I like that too. I know you said you really appreciate that title and what it what it uh, what it leads us to to think about. Um, it leads me to think about the fact that you know you have a a, a ministry, right? And you hear you think about governments that have ministries of culture, ministries of education, those types of things. It sounds a bit like you might have a, you have a ministry, a literal ministry, right, at the school. That's that's actually what's going on, even though it's not a government entity. I wonder if you can talk about that specific role of sort of sports chaplaincy that you do at the school. We've talked on this show with people who do uh, sports chaplaincy with professional athletes, with college athletes. What are some unique features of doing chaplaincy work with this this uh, uh, younger and and less elite. For most of them, they're probably less elite athletes. Um, what's it? What are the unique features of working with this this population?
2: That's a great question. Um, yeah. So, what are those unique features of working with high school students? I think the first thing, like you recognize, is you're looking at a broad range of students. Um, here at the academy, we have some kids who will go into Division One athletics, and we have some kids who. Uh, all of them are required to have an, uh, what we call a PGA, a performance group activity. So like theater, dance, athletics, things like that. And so some of them are just saying, this is what I like to do in the fall out of my options. So it is really finding that medium. Um, I think the big thing is engage- is just positive engagement and creating that space where they can realize that you're not there to um, you know judge their form or technique. If it's like a tennis stroke or golf or even, you know, Chad, for you on basketball, you know, I provide no suggestions in regards to those things. Um, But just to be that friendly and positive voice and to make those simple connections. Um, So I really enjoy making those basic connections, finding out how students got into a sport or what they're doing or what they enjoy and things in that way. Um, It also provides me a unique space in that um, I know that sport is not their whole entity. You know, unlike an elite athlete or a professional athlete who. You know, that is their vocation. If we're talking about someone who's in the NFL or the English Premier League, you know, that is their occupation. We tend to think of these people as people who are fulfilling a lifelong dream and they're living out these childhood memories. And we really mythologize that. But and while it might be true, they're also employees and they're doing a job. And so for for me, I'd really try to focus on engaging with that whole student. And I think our uh, chaplains in elite athletics do, too but I think it's different when uh, the sports is just maybe a two hour thing and whatnot in that way. Um, so I think those are some of those unique bits um, in that way. And I'm going to have to ask you to ask me the second part of the question. Again, I apologize. I got really focused on the first. So <laughs>
0: <laughs> That was the part I was looking for. The, the first part of the answer. No, that, that's good. I, um, Uh, so thinking about the unique features there, which you got at, you know, perfectly well, I, I wonder how you see that as, as part of your broader role on, on campus. Then if I'm going to expand on that question, you know, how much time out of the day are you spending in sports chaplaincy work this week being, um, you know, the beginning week, the first week of the season, you're probably spending a little bit more with the athletes on athletics, but, but throughout the school year, how much time are you spending with athletes or on athletics?
2: Thank you for clarifying. Um, yeah, so, uh, I usually try to get to every, my goal is to get to every practice once a week, um, and see every kid compete once it's a season. So usually it's three to four days a week for about, uh, two hours at a time. so we're looking at between six and eight hours a week on that. Uh, maybe a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on the week. Uh, it was a lot more before I had, uh, children. And so that's kind of one of those features that changes when, uh, Things like schools get canceled uh, or, you know, somebody's can't make daycare or whatnot. So those things happen. Um, But that's one of the, uh, so it's usually between uh, six to eight hours a week. Sometimes I don't engage. I just am present. Other times I really try to have an active role and uh, be a part of it. Other times I'll have coaches come up to me and say, hey, can you stop by today? Or would you be willing to do something like this? Uh, So it really varies. One thing I also wanted to add, and and now I'm thinking about this with that first part is, it's unique with the high school level too, because we are really a seed sowing ministry. Um, And at the high school level, you know, students are just starting to ask questions about life, about meaning, about some of these greater truths. Um, I do not expect my kids to have these major breakthrough moments about what they think they believe what they don't know if they believe, or if they say, you know, I have no belief value in this whatsoever. So part of my role, both with sport and in the wider community, is to create space for them to have a positive engagement with a religious figure. The majority of our kids do not have a specifically religious identity, and we're not a a religious, you know, we're not an explicitly Christian school. Um, So one of my main goals is to create a space where they feel loved and supported Uh, for who they are, not for what they believe. Um, I had a friend in college who had a very bad experience around this time in his life with a religious figure, and he was very averse to any type of religious authority or figure after that. And that uh, aftermath has always stuck with me as I work with high school students, that if I really have a negative experience with a kid, that could affect them for many, many years. Or that could make it where later in life, uh, you know, maybe they're in the hospital with a family member, and they don't want to talk to a chaplain because their chaplain in high school was a real jerk, and so I don't want to be that person in that way. So I think working with high school students, um, we can be so eager for results, and that's just not what high school is about. High school is about helping grow and set that table where they can see for the rest of their life, and they have that you know ability to go forward. So we're really in a formation. Uh, stage and whatnot. I know a few weeks ago you had on Warren and Matt from Sports Chaplaincy UK. Uh, and with that formation stage, I really have uh, leaned into what they use with uh, pastorally proactive and spiritually reactive. And that's a really helpful thing. You know, I'm here to be a pastoral, non religious presence to everyone. Um, and if you want to talk about faith, if you have wider questions about that, I'm here for those things. Um, but that's not what I lead with, because I'm not going to get very far if I'm constantly leading with that.
1: You know, Will, as you talk, I can imagine coaches and other chaplains uh, feeling just a little sense of jealousy just about your your access. Uh, the whole residential part of this is is pretty unique. I mean, typically. A chaplain goes home, right? And coaches go home and we try to simulate. I try to simulate with my team some of these experiences through spring break, right? You get one week where we all live together, life together. Uh, And those experiences are often the ones that my former athletes will talk about the most. That one trip, that one time that we all got to be in the same space together. And I think there's something really specific uh, that you can... uh, do in your role because of that residential aspects because you're engaged with them but you've now not only engaged in sport chaplaincy and ministry at your school but you also have turned around and started to study it and look at it you're starting to you know observe other chaplains in their roles and if you could give us just a little background on how you got into that and and sort of the direction that it took you over the last several years
2: yeah. And uh, make sure we come back to that access piece, because that's actually one of the really unique things that's come out of the research I've done. So if I don't hit it, please remind me to come back to it. So, yeah, uh, I uh, I've always been academically inclined, not in the sense of like I'm smart, but I'm, I've always been academically inter- curious. Um, it's always been a place where I've found a lot of life and engagement. So when I was looking into seminaries, I I wanted to go to a seminary where I could be pastorally trained, but also had a very rich academic history. And I was fortunate to go to Princeton Theological Seminary, which does both, I think, uh, very well. And so at Princeton, there's a professor named Dr. Jamie Deming. And Dr. Deming uh, is a modern church historian, but he specializes a lot in sport. And that's where I found out you could wed Uh, the study of sport and the study of religion. And that really blew the doors open academically for me. Um, I did my master's thesis on papal masses that were held at Yankee Stadium and talking about using that as an interesting space for engagement with Catholicism in America. And I knew uh, I wanted to continue to study. Um, I needed to get a job because my wife was going to go do her master's and doctoral work. And as my grandfather said, if you guys both want to do PhDs, you'll have to live off love and you'll always stay very thin. So it was my turn to uh, huh. my turn to work, but I, I was very uh, engaged and curious and wanted to keep pushing. So I, I reached out to Dr. Andy Parker at the University of Gloucestershire, who many who listen to this podcast will know both from his previous uh, engagement in this uh, medium, but also... Uh, Just his proliferation of work uh, and the people he's impacted and worked with, uh, both academically and practically, you know, our field is is better off because of people like Andy. And I was super fortunate that he uh, allowed me to come on as a PhD student under him part time. And I did that in my first year of professional work. So I've been a a part time PhD student for about eight years now. I took a year off, um, and. I was really interested in, you know, I was working as a chaplain in boarding schools, and I was really intrigued and interested by these guys who were sports chaplains in elite sports settings. And as I continued to read and work out, I realized that there was some theoretical writing. But um, this was even before the first Congress and the special edition of Practical Theology that came out in 2016, an academic journal specifically on sports chaplaincy. Um, And there was a real lack of research in how these guys work and how they function in these elite settings. And so I decided that would be a really awesome uh, doctoral dissertation. So I approached a number of chaplains in the English Premier League and then the NFL. And I ended up doing uh, in-depth qualitative uh, interviews with them over the span of a season. So I worked with eight chaplains, four in the NFL and four in the English Premier League, and I interviewed them throughout their seasons. And then I actually had the privilege of visiting two, one in each league, um, and attended a pre-game worship service in the NFL, and I shadowed an EPL chaplain uh, throughout his evening. Uh, I went to a night game, uh, but his how he did his stuff at his home at home matches and his presence and whatnot amongst the team. And so I felt and still feel super fortunate to have been a part of that work and that research and it's helped make me a better chaplain and my hope is that it can help us continue to develop sports chaplaincy um not just at the elite level but ask these questions of how can we as chaplains continue to improve how can we uh embody and take a theological lens as to what we're doing uh but also how can we um continue to feel empowered to share God's love and to serve and care for those that we uh, that are in our care.
0: It seems like um, you know I've been bl- I've been blown away the last the last uh, year and a half, 2 years really the more I've gotten to know sports chaplains I've been blown away by some of the leaders in the field and and the fervor that there is and the motivations to uh to really improve the the profession, the professional opportunities, the abilities of professionals within that 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 sphere of work, I've just been blown away by um, by by the wisdom, by the care, by the interest, and it seems like this is coming from a number of different motivations. Now, I know this wasn't the thrust of your research, but what do you see as? as some of the motivations for you, for Professor Parker, for uh, you know, some of some of the others that you have engaged with through interviews and whatnot for the field of sports chaplaincy. Why is this why is this such an important field of work?
2: And you guys ask really good questions. I mean it's one thing to listen to <laughs> you know, you're having to sit I love it. I think it's such important work because as we continue to see our society shift all societies change over time nothing is is static in that way we continue to see an emphasis on sport and athletics and things like that and you know like it or not we are living in a time period where christianity and religious narratives do not have as much airtime or as dominant of a space as they used to i would contend and i don't have the academic You know, kind of background of specifics for this, but I feel very confident in saying, you know, religious traditions are not the central places of meaning making that they used to be. What I mean by that is people are finding meaning in their life and seeking those key sources of meaning from places outside of a religious tradition or less so than they used to. And I think one of the places where they are finding that meaning and seeking that out is through athletics be it as fans and their involvement and their identity with the wider community affiliated with a specific sport or team, or be it as participants and engaging in activity. And even though they still seek meaning, we still need these from other places. You know, I think we as people in faith really wish that the only place you could find full and true meaning was in the church. And I think at times that can really bother us that people can lead full, healthy, giving loving lives outside of that. Not everyone, but it doesn't bother everyone. But I think that at times we wish we had more of a corner on that market. Um, But just because we don't corner that market doesn't mean we can't still be a part of meaning making. And in fact, I still think we play a vital role in meaning making and helping people work through things in life, be it joys or challenges. And I think that's where sports chaplaincy can be such a powerful thing because we can come in and we can engage with individuals and help walk with them through life and celebrate those joys and grieve through losses in a way that sport can't in itself. You know, sport cannot answer all of its, all the questions of meaning and of elements of life. I can, I can share an example of that from my research. One of the chaplains who I worked with got a phone call from a uh, from the head coach and he said the head coach said to this guy, have you heard what happened?" And the chaplain said, no, no, I haven't. And he said, well, it's really bad. One of our players uh, there's uh, there's been a, a miscarriage or a stillbirth really late in pregnancy and it's already in the news. it's really already starting to blow up a- and I need you to get down here. I need you to help because we're blokes and we don't know what to do with this. And I thought that that head coach, you know, said it so much better than probably most could. You know, sport can do so many things in our life, but sport, particularly elite, highly competitive sport at times can struggle with how do we make sense of those things like those losses in life and things like that. That's not normative for that space. How do we deal with those elements? And that's where we as sports chaplains can come in and say, actually, we can deal deal with them as a group we can name this and embrace this we can be vulnerable and still be competitive it doesn't it's not going to hurt our competitive edge to say that we have feelings and that the death of you know not only this child but the hopes of what this child could be is going to affect us and that's going to affect us on the field too and i would i would make the contention and we can talk a little bit about this that particularly elite athletics is not built. It's not in the structure of that community of that group to openly name that. And the sports chaplain can actually play a really powerful role in coming in and saying, actually, let's name this and let's come to a space where we can grieve this or we can talk about it. And then we'll move back to that place where we were. And that sports chaplain creates what we call a limit is a liminal entity that because, that can move in and help that group in that kind of pendulum of swinging between those places. And that's a really powerful role to play. So why does it matter? I think it matters because sport, uh, sport needs at times people in places that are not normative to it, like grief, like vulnerability and things like that. And someone to come in and say, Hey, let's talk about these. And you can still have value as a human being. In those ways outside of a performance identity. Um, and a sports chaplain's a really great person to do that.
1: You know, Will, that section of this podcast, I'm going to clip and uh, go back and listen to a few times. Uh, I think that you articulated something really powerful there, and I really appreciate the way you did it. I think you did it with real uh certitude and passion um and depth. So I I just wanted to you said, you know, you started with a little self-effacing. I don't I don't know if I can do this, right? Uh but that was a great answer and it got me thinking in so many ways. So uh when we think about the entities like sport that can fill a space for us. It's just interesting to me that I'm seeing that all around me as well. I, I spent Uh, you know, three hours last night hitting a kick, a pickleball around, which is a, you know, growing sport. But the community that people feel in that space, you know, 16, 18 guys all getting together, everybody on some sort of text chain. And it it turns into something where everybody knows each other. And it, it feels like it's playing that relational role. And in sport really can. Sport plays that relational role extremely well. It gives you that space to do that. Um, it, but I thought what, what was unique was, was that quick turn there, that sport can handle uh, normality and sport can handle joy and, and um, I think, jubilance. In those spaces, it, we, we kind of gravitate. It's those low moments. It's those unexpected life turns. And it might be for a team and it might be for an individual on a team where people need that sort of language. As a coach, I always feel like I want to play that role, uh, but I always recognize how hard it is for me to play that role when I am living in a hierarchical of a relationship, right? I'm, I have authority over these players. I have authority over that sort of golden nugget, which is playing time, right? So these things that they're fighting for or battling for. And so I've noticed that, you know, an assistant coach can move into that space sometimes. Uh, And and in your um, conversation, it's the chaplain playing that that um, intermediary role or that person who allows uh, you to think differently or talk differently. Tell me a little bit about how that plays out in a conversation. How does it start? Um, How do you engage a person uh, from a chaplain's role where all of a sudden you feel like you know what i can take one step further beyond talking about you know how how the practice went today
2: yeah i i think it's a lot about we talk a lot about in, in chaplaincy and in sports chaplaincy as well a, a ministry of presence and this idea that one of the most powerful gifts we can give is our presence i think this goes for so many things i mean you think about moments in your own life where someone was just present with you and how powerful of an experience that can be and we as chaplains can give that and i think with that comes this notion of being able to look and see at how people are okay this this person seems agitated today or this person has been really struggling is there a space i can move into there and ask them about that or this person seems really jubilant and i really want to know what's going on cuz i haven't seen a joy that's this you know wellspring like this out of them in so long. So I think first it begins with being present to notice those things and to build trust for that. If I only show up as the chaplain at school when someone's in trouble or there's bad news, like they've received a phone call that someone's passed away, the only re- thing kids are going to assume or my fac- the faculty I work with and staff I work with are going to assume when I show up is that someone's dead or something's wrong. So to create a space where we can engage, I have to be there in those normative times. And a lot of it is just uh, building that trust of of showing that I'm not there to push a religious narrative, that I'm not there to check a box, that I'm not there to be some sort of morality police. I'm just there to be there for them. And that creates that space when you need those moments to come alongside somebody to you know say hey can we just touch take a walk like where which class are you going to or where are you going let's can we talk about what i saw yesterday and a lot of the times what i try to do is i try to make the offering you know and i think this is what we can do as chaplains is we cannot determine whether someone accepts our offer but we can say hey look i've noticed this about you or i've noticed this and i want to hear what you have to say i'm i'm worried about you or this seems off can we talk about it? And I'm not asking because I think you're a bad person or you're doing something wrong. I'm asking because I care about you. And it's amazing how powerful that can be when we say something and then tell someone the reason why we're doing this because we care about them and they're flourishing. Not because I care about you because you're my best golfer and we have a huge match coming up this weekend and I really need you to be on, on point. Or I'm not asking because you're you know one bad assignment from failing this class or whatever else it may be. I'm asking just because you have value as you and that value and you matter to me. And so what I've found is, is creating those spaces where I can ask those questions, where I can come looking for those things and offering that as a, you know, in the most genuine way I can, um, has been really helpful and effective. Um, I don't know if that person's going to accept it. They might not accept it at that moment. But the goal is just to create that space where they can say, look, I'm here for a resource if you need me. And when you're ready to chat or if you're ever ready to chat, I'm here ready to listen and engage with you because I care about you for you. Um, and at first, that can be really disarming to people because so many times in life, particularly in elite athletics, people want things out of these athletes. And frankly, people want things out of elite athletics chaplains as well. They want access. They want uh, you know, information. They want m- merchandise. They want status. There is a powerful thing of just saying, no, actually, I just want to care for you for you. Um, that can be both very disarming and uncomfortable for some, but also amazingly liberating and powerful. And it's just creating those spaces where people know that. And sometimes people are ready to talk after that first one. And other times it's weeks, months, years of just saying, hey, I'm here. And then finally you get a text or a call or an email that says, can, can I actually take you up on that offer to buy me a cup of coffee? And it's, yeah, totally. So you just rush with those moments at that time.
0: I get the sense that what we're hearing is a really cool combination, Will, of your uh, experiences as, a, as a, a school minister, as a sports chaplain, but also... Um the ways in which you've you've been able to explore uh, this this work in deeper levels through your your doctoral work. You've spoken about one one of the the main three arguments in your dissertation, the liminality, the liminal space, and you know feeling comfortable in that space. Uh, I want to give you the opportunity to share about about the other two and 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 how important those are as well to the work that you're doing.
2: Yeah. so, I guess I'll, I'll 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 move back for just one second and say one of the goals of the research was to understand what roles chaplains fulfill, and because this is something that had not been documented on a large scale or comparative done comparatively between different uh, nations, and so we wanted to see what kind of roles the chaplains fulfilled, and so overall, sports chaplains in these settings fulfilled many of the same roles that other. Uh, subfields of chaplaincy fulfill, like education chaplaincy, prison ministries, hospital chaplaincy, those things we're used to. They tend to be, uh, fulfill the duties of a religious minister, so leading worship, marrying, burying, running Bible studies, things like that, tended to provide pastoral support and care, and also this element of presence. What's unique about sports chaplaincy, and and I'll build into some of those other elements there, is that m- the majority of sports chaplains are volunteers, and even those sports chaplains who receive some form of financial compensation from their host organization? So in this case, the you know the club, the sports team, uh, they that does not tend to be their full occupation. None of the chaplains I engaged with are paid a hundred percent by their host organization to be the team's chaplain. And so with this comes this really unique space of being a volunteer. And, you know, volunteering is great, uh, but volunteering also has a lot of pitfalls. And this is kind of comes back to the access element, because as a volunteer, access can be something that is really um, dynamic, if you will. Access is not a static concept. You you think about it, the hospital chaplain is always going to have a fair amount of access, not everyone might want to speak to the hospital chaplain, but people can either request the chaplain or the chaplain is able to knock on a door and say, hi, I'm the chaplain. Would you like to chat? And can engage in that way. They have a level of access that is their employment allows. But a sports chaplain, particularly at the elite level, that can really fluctuate depending on who is in upper executive positions or the head coach. Um, so I know one NFL chaplain who was not in the study, who had great access for 15, 20 years. And a new head coach came in and basically said, sorry, non-essential personnel are not allowed on the field anymore during games. And the chaplain's uh, credential to be on the field during a game was revoked. And that's not just one less body on the field, him deeming only essential personnel on the field. What does that say about the chaplain? That they're non-essential anymore. It sends a very clear message. So that access can really fluctuate, and because it's not, because of that volunteer status, other things like accountability are also not kind of uh, hardwired or explicit in kind of the terms of engagement between the host organization and the chaplain. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a leap here, and I'm just gonna assume that there are some accountability structures for both of you at your respective academic institutions. Uh, you know, be it uh, your colleagues are going to uh, do evaluations, your the dreaded student eval, if you will. What are students going to say? Or what did I? Who did I bother <laughs> with what? Um, you might have to do some stuff on your own in terms of reflection or hit certain metrics. Those are all very formal elements of accountability. But there's also impersonal elements of accountability, one-on-one check-ins. You might have a, a boss or a colleague who checks in with you, just make sure things are going okay. And what our research found is that sports chaplains really only have kind of informal accountability um, at their host organization. And even that can be very minimal and patchy. And outside of their host organization too, um, no... Uh, Many of the chaplains in the study were also parish or congregational pastors, and none of them had a formal evaluation regarding their chaplaincy work. Now, why does that matter? Um, I believe that it's not because chaplains are doing bad things, but because evaluations can be very helpful in us growing and learning, and accountability is something that can help us grow and learn and harness our skills better. It also makes people take things more seriously. You know, if I'm in charge of assessing a formal evaluation that is a part of our, you know, company or our school's procedures, that's a, you know, that's a fairly serious thing and we need to take that seriously. So by creating structures of accountability and evaluation, it kind of elevates that role of the chaplain and says, this is something we value enough to, be held, to hold you accountable and to evaluate. And so that was something that we found in the research that these structures weren't present. And we, and I believe that chaplains and organizations could benefit from those things. Um, I think at times we can get nervous around accountability and evaluation because we think it's all about what we're doing wrong, but it can also be a lot of celebrating of what we're doing well and finding new avenues to do those things. And that provides opportunities for our sports chaplains to continue to engage and continue to grow their kind of ministry and pastoral presence footprint um, in a given entity. I think part of that is also understanding boundaries and formal uh, processes of reporting structures and things like that. And this was something I think we as sports chaplains really have to continue to work on. Um, Many of the sports chaplains I worked with, um, did not know if there was an issue, be it an allegation of abuse or you know, doping or cheating or things like that, who they could go to confidentially within their, uh, within their organization. This was particularly true in the U.S. It was a, it's a little more formal in the U.K., um, but that places the chaplain in a really dangerous position in the sense of if they hear or say something or if they hear something or they know of something and they don't know where to go that could really bring some challenges for their own ministry. Um, I think a lot of times when we talk about those things in the church, people say, well, I don't need to worry about that because I would never do something like that or I would never be caught in a position that way. And I think we really have to work on understanding boundary trainings and understanding those kind of respectable relationships, not as a question of our own personal morality, but an understanding of best practices, particularly if challenges do come up. And I think that's a huge place we as chaplains can work. I had a number of chaplains tell me, I haven't worried about these things because I would never find myself in that position. And I respectfully disagree that it's not about what you think you might occur. It's about responding when challenges come up. So I think that was kind of the accountability part, but I want to also focus, or sorry, I should stop. Is there anything you guys want to pick up on that before I kind of move into a space of talking about something else and whatnot.
1: No, go, go on. Um, go, take us to the next step.
2: Great. Sorry. I apologize. I felt like I was going for a while there. I just wanted to make sure you guys could jump in if you wanted to. Um, one of the things I'm most excited about this research and about the work um, is is challenging chaplains to think theologically about their work what is the wellspring of our kind of theological mission and where do we, where, how can we be empowered by that? Um, and I'm really excited about, uh, that part of the research and that we've placed some theological language around sports chaplaincy and using this language of the Missio Dei, which, uh, loosely translates as the mission of God or God's mission from Latin. And the Missio Dei is a concept that comes out of the, uh, Right after World War II, as things start to change and these International Missionary and World Council of Churches conferences, and is really formalized by a South African missiologist named David Bosch, who writes kind of the gold standard of missional or the study of missions uh, textbook called, Par- uh, oh my gosh, no, I keep- transforming mission. Uh, and it's all about how the church's mission has shaped over time periods What Bosch argues is that we, in our current day and age, should be living into witnessing to the Missio day or God's mission. And this is a really tapping into the relational power and presence of God's love and goodness, of recognizing that we worship and serve a God who is bigger than us and who is already present in places and in relationships and in people before we even get there. And part of our role as Christians is not to build up the church specifically, but rather to build up the kingdom of God by affirming that love and that goodness and being that presence, not only in our religious circles and our churches, but throughout our whole world. You know, Chad and and Brian, you guys have a role to play in the Missio Day in your classrooms, in your department meetings, um, on your teams, in your families, in your kids' uh, athletic circles. I had that role to play with our our friends at our school and my research and things like that. And chaplains can play this hugely powerful role of being witnesses to the missio day. You know, we know sport. We've heard it on the podcast. Sport is a place that you can really feel terrible about yourself. You can have a really fragile mentality of who I am and who I was created to be, particularly if it's based on our performance. And a chaplain come in and Can come in and say, you know, there is this being that created you that, of course, they are happy if you're happy with your performance, but that has nothing to do with your value. And because that's how God sees you, that's how I want to see you too. And that is a hugely powerful and beautiful place a sports chaplain can work from that can really transform and change how a person or a group can see themselves in positive ways.
1: You know, well, the the passion of your research uh, just tells me that this is very much a to-be-continued uh, podcast. In other words, uh, I, I think that you're just starting to unpack and uncover things uh, through both your work uh, day-to-day and through what how you're digging in and exploring some of these issues. And so, one, I just want to thank you for Doing that work for um, being residential with your with your students, uh, and 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 uh, being a foster parent, those are things that um, when you intersect those two together, it just shows uh, your missional heart. Uh, and we just want to acknowledge that here. We really appreciate that, and and we just want to thank you for being on the podcast. We we really appreciate that. It's been good for me to get to know you through the through the few years that we have. Um, and I just look forward to more. I'm hoping that you can get out to England. I know that, uh, you know that place really well for the uh, third global Congress on sport and Christianity next August. So we're really excited to bring some people together as many people as we can, uh, to, to engage, to meet, to, to live with one another and also to, uh, to continue studying this. So thanks very much, Will. Um, and, and until next time, thanks so much for having me guys. Thanks for listening to the Sport Faith Life podcast. Find previous episodes at sportfaithlife.com and on Apple Podcasts. We're releasing each episode with a blog post authored by our guests, so you can find the blog for this podcast and other posts at the same website, sportfaithlife.com.